Hey there, it's Jeremy Myers, and you're listening to the Redeeming God Podcast. So do you ever feel exhausted or overwhelmed by life? Is sin and temptation beating you at every turn? Do you look at the state of the world and wonder what is going on and what you can do about it and why God isn't doing more to fix things? Do you ever feel defeated, ineffective in your attempts to follow Jesus on the path of discipleship? If you answered yes to any of those questions, then our podcast study of Ephesians 1 verses 20 through 23 are for you today. We're finishing up Ephesians chapter 1. These verses talk about the power of God and how this power is at your disposal and how God is using it to change and transform the world. How you can live a victorious Christian life. That's what we'll be talking about today. Now, we're also going to begin our study, our podcast, with a letter from a listener about crusade evangelism. You know, like uh, when Billy Graham was alive, these Billy Graham evangelistic crusades, or those put on by Greg Laurie or something like that. Okay, so stick with me. That's where we're headed today. All right. There's a letter in your mailbox. Thank you very much, George Carlin. (laughs) All right, let's get into this message from a listener. Here's uh, Here's the question. What do you think of crusade revivals like Billy Graham or Greg Laurie outreaches? Don't you think there are many ways to evangelize? All right, so the quick answer to that is yes, I do think there are many ways to evangelize. And yes, evangelistic crusades like those of Billy Graham, Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, that is still ongoing and and doing crusades, or those uh, outreaches by Greg Laurie and others who do these sorts of things. Look, they are one way of doing evangelism, okay? Now, having said that, in my opinion— These sorts of evangelistic crusades, this method of evangelism, may be the least effective form, okay? Uh, I, have a, I have a large section in my book, my giant book. This thing is over, it's, it's 1,275 pages, this book of mine. Uh, it's called Close Your Church for Good. It's available on Amazon. If you want your reading for the next year, <laughs> go ahead and get a copy of it. Uh, Not many people buy it just because of its size, Uh, 1,275 pages. Anyway, I do devote an entire section in that long book about evangelism, and as part of that section, I do talk about crusade evangelism. Look, it has done a lot to advance the cause of the kingdom, to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ, to uh, bring many people into the family of God, to have them receive eternal life. And while I'm not a big fan of exactly the way Billy Graham and others present the gospel and the offer of eternal life, look, I'm not too much of a critic either. Overall, it's done some, uh, some really good work, okay? But, and here's my main sort of criticism of crusade evangelism. In general, it does a terrible job of follow-up discipleship, okay? Uh, making uh, those people who come forward, raise their hand, whatever it is they're doing— Uh, making them a long-term, faithful, committed follower of Jesus Christ. Usually there's this music and this high-powered speaker, and then there's sort of this peer pressure to to, to come forward and pray with a counselor and so on, and there's tears and, okay? Uh, But then the people go home, and that's about it. 
Yes, a lot of times these crusades, they try to partner with local churches and they train pastors and lay leaders to follow up with those people who made who 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 came forward to 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 disciple them and invite them into their church and so on. But even then the statistics revealed that the vast majority uh well over 90% the statistics say. It's like I think it's like 94%. Basically, uh they, they come forward and then that's the end of it. They they never uh, connect with other Christians. They never develop relationships with, uh, you know, any, any other people who can help them with the issues and struggles and trials that are going to come their way as a follower of Jesus. Okay. Now, in my opinion, does that mean they're not Christians? No. No, you know what I believe about that. I believe if a person believes in Jesus for eternal life, then they have it. Okay. But that's not the end and end all of the Christian life. Uh, be- believing in Jesus for eternal life is just the beginning there's so much more in store for people who, 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 who want to transform their life and change their life into what Jesus wants and has for them, and that requires discipleship. And discipleship requires other Christians to walk with you and encourage you and maybe even offer some correction and guidance as needed, okay? And crusade evangelism generally fails at most of those sorts of things, okay? So uh, what is a more effective way? Well, my personal favorite is just relational evangelism. This is where you you build friendships with people, not as a way of evangelizing them. Okay, that's not a good motive, uh, but just because you want to be friends with somebody, that's it. And along the way, they discover, because you're friends, that you are a follower of Jesus, and maybe you have conversations about that, and maybe you don't. Uh, but uh, you have no pressure, put no pressure on them to become a Christian or anything like that. Um, but usually that they, they come to see that you are genuine in your beliefs and in your faithfulness to Jesus, and they see the good things, hopefully, that are in your life as a result. If you're a hypocritical, judgmental, negative Christian, then they're not going to see those things and want nothing to do with you, which is largely the, the, the biggest problem in in American Western Christianity today anyway. We've got to fix that first. Uh, and then after a person believes in Jesus, now you're still their friend and you hang out with them and you're helping them, you're walking with them along their journey, along their, their first steps as a follower of Jesus. You see, that's the most effective way because it's not only bringing people into the kingdom, but it's also bringing them up in the kingdom. It's helping them join the family of God and then it's helped nurturing them and raising them up within the family of God. That's why relational evangelism is always going to be better and more effective than crusade evangelism, okay? So that's a sort of a, a short answer to the question there about what my beliefs are about crusade evangelism, and I hope it makes sense. Now, if you do want to learn more about this, I do have a couple of articles on my website on crusade evangelism and whether the gospel is really preached at crusade evangelism. I will include links to those in the manuscript, the show notes section for this podcast episode. It's at Ephesians, uh, redeeminggod.com, Ephesians 1, 20-23. All right, you just search Google for that and it'll, it'll pop up. Or go to my website and search in the little search bar at the bottom to pop it up also. Uh, Alternately, if you do want to get a copy of my book, Close Your Church for Good, uh, maybe you don't want to read all 1,275 pages, but you can just flip to the section on evangelism and and read those to see what I have, my thoughts are about evangelism and crusade evangelism and how best to evangelize the world. Okay, so hopefully that answered the question of the listener who sent that in. Let's go on to our study of Ephesians 1, 20 through 23. So last week, I briefly introduced this topic of power 
in Ephesians 1.19, and I sort of left it on that because I said that Paul goes on to close out chapter 1 in the last half of verse 19, and then all the way through 23, verse 23, talking about power. So that's what we're going to look at today, this, this concept of power. An interesting thing about power, I think one of the reasons Paul devotes so much time to this is, firstly, because everybody wants power, right? Uh, kids want power, sometimes even over their adults or over their lives in various ways. Adults want power. Everybody's on a quest for power, and different people go about it in different ways. Some seek power by getting lots of money and possessions, right? And, and no doubt about it, in this world, lots of money gives you lots of power. Some people seek power through political office. You know, so they can tell people what to do and they can make laws to, to change things. Uh, many presidents and senators and congressmen, all right, some of them, many of them are simply in their offices, not so much because they want to help people. Maybe they, they say that and maybe they have deceived themselves into thinking that, but down in the core of their heart, really what they want to do is have power over other people, okay? Now, thing with power is it's not necessarily by itself a bad thing. I mean, God has power. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. So power by itself is not evil. Uh, Power is like money or possessions. They're not bad things. But if you become obsessed with getting more, then they can become idols. If you misuse and abuse the power you know, or money or possessions or food or whatever, um, then it can become destructive in your life because they now are perverted from what God intended or desired for them. So power is that way. Power is a good thing. And if it it comes from the right source and if it is used in the right way, then it can be a, a benefit to this world, to our life and to society, to culture. Okay. So here's the funny thing about power, though. Even though the entire world wants power, everybody wants power in various ways, according to Scripture, really only Christians truly have the power that everybody wants and desires. This power comes to us from God. Ultimately, only God has the power, but he gives us his power to use. And that is one of the things Paul is writing about in Ephesians 1, 20 through 23. Uh, The thing that the world wants, the Christians have, and Paul tells us how we have it, why we have it, and what we have it for. That's what we're going to learn in these verses, okay? So let's just pick back up sort of the last half of verse 19. Paul writes, that power is like the working of his mighty strength. All right, you don't really pick it up in the English here, but in Greek, there are three words for power. The first one is uh, energion, okay? And uh, that's where we get our English word energy. You can sort of hear that in there. Uh, energy or energion is the supernatural energy. It is God's working uh, in us, the, the, the powerful working of God. The second word for power here is kratos, and it does mean power. It's a good, good translation. Uh, kratos is a relatively rare word in the New Testament. It's only used 12 times. And it refers to power that belongs to God alone. Humans typically don't have this power. Okay? Um, There's one time where it is used in reference to Satan in Hebrews 2.14. Okay? But there, it's only referring to Satan having power of death. God has power of life, which is real power, power to build up and make things. Satan has no power to create or make anything. Satan only has the power to destroy 
and to kill. So uh, it, it, it's, it's an abuse, it's a perversion of power that Satan has. And so um, kratos is the second word for power. The third word for power is iskus, and it means might or strength. It's fine translation as we have here in 119. Now, why am I talking about this? Well, here we have half of a verse, and Paul mentions power three times. It's sort of like in in Isaiah, where we read that God is holy, 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 or Revelation 4.8 has the same reference. God is holy, holy, holy. What does that mean? He's thrice holy, which means he's ultimate, perfectly holy, the holiest of holies, okay? And so here, when Paul mentions power three different ways or three different terms, he's basically saying God is powerful, powerful, powerful. He's the most powerful being that is. He is completely powerful. In theological terms, we call this omnipotent. He is all-powerful. Okay, but what does that mean? You know, power is a little abstract. It's, it's hard to grasp how powerful God is. So Paul explains, he gives an example, really, in verse 20 of, of what this power does, how this power works, and then he goes on to explain how God exerts this power in the world. Okay, so in Ephesians 1.20, he says, which he, God, exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms. Remember, I talked about how God has the power of life, Satan has the power of death. Well, here we see that. God raised Jesus from the dead. No other power in the world can do this, can raise anyone from the dead. God alone has that sort of power. This is the power that Paul is talking about. He has the power that gives life. Okay, but then Paul goes on and talks about seated him at the right hand in heavenly realms. And here's where we're starting to get to the sort of the crux of the issue, the central point that Paul is wanting to make. And it's a critical point, and most people miss it, so let me try to explain it to you. You might remember that back in Ephesians 1, verse 3, where Paul mentioned in heavenly places, seated in heavenly places there, we learned that despite what most people think, This is not referring to some otherworldly existence where God and the angels dwell, and oh, you know, glory sort of a thing, and that's where Jesus is, uh, or that's what means in heavenly places or in the heavenlies. No, when we go forward into Ephesians chapter 6, and we'll look at this more when we get there in other places, we discover that in the heavenlies or in heavenly places doesn't refer to this otherworldly, spiritual, ethereal existence but instead refers to this physical world, the physical realm on this earth right now in our lives. And what it means is sort of what what, what Jesus taught us to pray, that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. What it means is, is Jesus has been given power and authority and dominion to bring the rule of heaven, the ways and uh, 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 laws of heaven down to earth and basically turn earth into heaven, in a sense, bringing the two, making the two one. It's, it's, it's bringing the ways of heaven down to earth. That's the idea. It's, it's, it's bringing these spiritual realities of the way God wants to do things and bringing them down to earth. That's what it means in the heavenlies. And so Paul writes that here in verse 20. He's not saying, look, Jesus left earth and went up to heaven and now sits at the right hand of God in the heavenly places. It basically means God took Jesus and made him the rightful ruler of the earth, over the earth, so that Jesus could bring the ways of heaven down to earth, bring the spiritual realities of heaven 
down to the physical realities of earth, so that the two become one. It's the marriage of heaven and earth. That's what Paul is referring to here. Okay, and in fact, that's even what we begin to see there in verse 21. Uh, we see that Jesus is seated in the heavenlies, verse 21, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. So this idea of present age, also age to come, that's referring to this earth, the things that are going on now and that will continue on into eternity. Now, these five terms, these five words that Paul uses here, rule, authority, power, dominion, and title, okay, uh, a lot of people say that these refer, think that these refer to spiritual beings, you know, like demons or different levels or hierarchies among the, the fallen realm or an angelic realm or something. Okay, sort of. I, I don't have a big issue with that. Uh, but it's not just talking about the spiritual realm, the hierarchy of angels and demons or anything like that here. Um, it's not just a spiritual reality. The Bible, as you study these terms, the Bible reveals that these terms refer to sort of the spiritual realities that are behind or controlling the physical things that run our world, such as governments, um, such as educational institutions, financial institutions, nations, presidents, leaders, congressmen, senators, prime ministers, okay, uh, 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 corporations, these sorts of things. These are the rules, authorities, powers, and dominions in every title. And there are twisted and perverted spiritual realities behind all those forces, behind all those powers, behind all those institutions, which are supposed to lead and guide this world in the ways of God, but have become perverted and twisted and distorted, and so do the opposite instead. By the way, if you want to read an excellent, excellent, by far the best study on these sorts of terms, I highly recommend the Powers Trilogy by Walter Wink, uh, the one where he really gets into the biblical data and, and explains all the terms from the Bible, is the first volume in those three books. It's called Naming the Powers. But as long as you're going to get one of those books, you might as well get all three. The second volume is Unmasking the Powers, and the third is Engaging the Powers. Um, naming is pretty technical. Naming the Powers is pretty technical and involved. The third book is the best of the three, Engaging the Powers. It really shows us as the church how we can do that. But of course, you sort of need at least volume one, Naming the Powers, for the data, the biblical data, to help you understand what Walter Wink is arguing in the third volume. Anyway, uh, Naming the Powers, if you want to learn more about how all this works and is related to the institutions and structures, power structures of our world, okay? But getting back to the text here, oh, and, and all this is, remember, when we, when we get over to Ephesians chapter 6 about spiritual warfare, where Paul writes that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against what? These powers and rulers and authorities and dominions of this world, okay? And, and spiritual warfare, we'll see there, is not just about angels and demons, but about transforming and changing this world now into the way Jesus wants. That's what spiritual warfare is. We'll talk about all that when we get to Ephesians 6 uh, and, and this discussion of those words there, okay? So basically, here's what Paul is saying in these verses so far. He's saying, hey, I know that you Ephesian Christians, and so he's talking to you and I today as well, okay, 2,000 years later, I know you have concerns about your government and what they're doing. 
I know you have concerns about your local and national leaders and how they only seem to make policies and laws that benefit themselves and enrich themselves. I know you have concerns about the police and police brutality and how they abuse their power. I know you have concerns about financial institutions and the banks and how they they steal and, and twist the law and hide money so they don't pay taxes and all these other things. I know you have concerns about your, your job and, and your boss at work and, and how he's coming down on you and endangering your, your ability to make income. I know you have concerns about the things in our culture and our society like racism and sexism and inequality. But all of these powers and rulers and authorities and dominions and titles, guess what, is what Paul says. Guess what? They are under the authority of Jesus Christ. He has dominion and power over them. So don't worry about them too much because Jesus is in control. Okay, That's what Paul is saying here. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And in fact, he that is in us has power and authority. He has been placed over far above all these other rules and authorities and powers and dominions and titles. That's exactly what Paul says in Ephesians 1.22. God has placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything. You see it here? All these problems in the world? Guess what? Jesus is in charge of them all. All of them are under his feet. That means he has authority over them all. He is the head over them all. All right. Now, (laughs) starting to think that there might be a problem with this understanding, right? And what's the problem? What's the problem? As we look around at the world today in this state of affairs, pick any government, pick any institution, pick any power structure, does it look like Jesus is in control? I mean, seriously. Is there any area of our world where it looks like Jesus is in control, that he has power and authority over everything that happens? No, (laughs) no. Governments and politicians and banks and leaders and educational institutions, none of them seem to be doing things the way Jesus would do them if he was really the head of them, if he was really the president, if he was really in control of them. So how is it that Paul can say here that all of these have been placed under the authority of Jesus. How can it be that such things, all these powers and authorities and so on, have been brought under the control of Jesus uh, if none of them really are doing what Jesus would do if he was actually in control of them? Is Paul just feeding us a line here? What's going on? Ah, the answer is found in verse 23. Ephesians 1, 23 which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. What is Paul talking about here? What is the body to which Paul refers? It is the church. The church. Yes, it's true. Jesus is the authority. He is in control. He is the head over all the power structures of this world. But guess how Jesus exerts his authority? Guess how Jesus makes the changes in this world that he wants to make? How does that happen? He does it through his body, the church. In other words, you and me. Okay? So so what this means is that to the same extent that the church steps up and does what we are called to do, to that extent 
is how Jesus, how far Jesus exerts his authority over the world. Okay? And so if the power structures of this world are doing things contrary to the ways of Jesus, then guess what? That simply means that we as the church are failing in our task to show the world what Jesus wants and to lead the world into the change that Jesus wants to see accomplished in this world. It's not Jesus failing. It's you and I who are failing. What this means is that all the failures in the world that you and I see all around us all the time, it's not Jesus failing. All of them are a failure by the church, the body of Christ, to step up with the power that God has given to us and use that power to lead the world in the way Jesus wants. So sadly, the history of the church is that we have fallen to the temptations. Remember Satan came and tempted Jesus, gave him these three temptations. Jesus turned his back on those temptations, and we as the church have happily picked them up and embraced them. Oh, Jesus turned them down, but Jesus, you know, this would really be helpful for us. All this power and, and popularity and money and, and fame and glory. Jesus, you, don't, you, you probably shouldn't have turned those away, Jesus. We're going to use them, okay? We have, uh, we as the church, okay, have, have followed the satanic ways of power and greed, okay? And in reality, we need to be leading the world into the ways of Jesus Christ. As goes the church, so goes the world. And when the world is failing, it's because the church is failing. So we as the church, we need to stand up as the body of Christ. We need to step up as the hands and feet and voice of Jesus and fill everything in every way, as Paul writes here in verse 23, all right? Uh, So that the power of God flows through us to resurrect the world. Just as God raised Jesus from the dead, we can, through God through us is going to raise this world from the dead as well. Jesus is the head of the world and the head of the church. Okay, and as such, the church fills the world and transforms it into the ways of the kingdom of God. That is the message Paul is talking about here. And it's pretty exciting. It's a pretty thrilling concept. Maybe a little sobering, but pretty exciting, inspiring, right? But the question is, how? How can we do this, Paul? What are the first steps we need to take? Well, guess what? That's what the next five chapters of Ephesians are all about. And Paul doesn't waste any time. He takes the biggest issue in his day, which, guess what, is the biggest issue in our day also, has been the biggest issue in the history of the world, which causes the greatest problems in the world. And he addresses it. He begins addressing it in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, all the way through verse 23 of Ephesians. I think it's 23, 22. I can't remember now off the top of my head. But he addresses this in Ephesians chapter 2, the biggest issue, the biggest problem in the world, and what Jesus did about it and how we as the church can follow the ways of Jesus to do something about it too. And if you're thinking it's sin, because you go and look there in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, I'm sorry, Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3, you see it mentions sin and so on. But we're going to talk about that next time, about what exactly this sin is, what exactly the problem is that Jesus addressed and that we as the church need to address too. We're going to see this isn't about going to heaven when we die, but about something much more important even, much more basic, and how the church can step up and use the power of God to transform and even resurrect the world by the power of God. Okay? That's where we're headed in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Hope you, hope you join me. By the way, just put one last plug in for my book. 
We've been talking here about the mission of the church, how to be the church in this world. That's what my giant book, Close Your Church for Good, is all about. Okay? By the way, the title, Close Your Church for Good, I don't want churches to cease to exist. I just sometimes think we might need to close down our buildings, because that's not the church, so that we can actually be the church in the world, the way God wants us to, the way we've been called to. That's what my book is all about, and it took me 1,275 pages to explain it, but I look at all sorts of things, evangelism and pastors and buildings and tithing and all sorts of practices, okay, and uh, talk about some of the problems that have crept in, how they came in, and what we are called to do about them, to change them so that we can be the church in this world. So anyway, if that's something you want to read, that book is available to you. And uh, it's available on Amazon, anywhere books are sold. So uh, get your yearly reading in for the year. Okay. So, hey, thanks for listening today. I hope this was inspiring and also encourage you to keep joining us as we pick back up next time in Ephesians chapter 2 with one of the most important truths about how God wants to powerfully work in you and me to change one of the greatest problems in this world. See you then.